This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 4 The Pilgrims Becoming Domesticated. Pilgrim Life at Sea. Horse Billiards. The Synagogue. The Writing School. Jack's Journal. The QC Club. The Magic Lantern. State Ball on Deck. Mock Trials. Charades. Pilgrim Solemnity. Slow Music. The Executive Officer Delivers an Opinion. We plowed along bravely for a week or more, and without any conflict of jurisdiction among the captains worth mentioning. The passengers soon learned to accommodate themselves to their new circumstances, and life in the ship became nearly as systematically monotonous as the routine of a barrack. I do not mean that it was dull, for it was not entirely so by any means, but there was a good deal of sameness about it. As is always the fashion at sea, the passengers shortly began to pick up sailor terms, a sign that they were beginning to feel at home. Half-past six was no longer half-past six to these pilgrims from New England, the South, and the Mississippi Valley. It was seven bells. Eight, twelve, and four o'clock were eight bells. The captain did not take the longitude at nine o'clock, but at two bells. They spoke glibly of the after-cabin, the forward-cabin, port and starboard, and the forecastle. At seven bells the first gong rang. At eight there was breakfast, for such as were not too seasick to eat it. After that all the well-people walked arm in arm up and down the long promenade deck, enjoying the fine summer mornings, and the seasick ones crawled out and propped themselves up in the lee of the paddle-boxes, and ate their dismal tea and toast, and looked wretched. From eleven o'clock until luncheon, and from luncheon until dinner at six in the evening, the employments and amusements were various. Some reading was done, and much smoking and sewing, though not by the same parties. There were the monsters of the deep to be looked after and wondered at. Strange ships had to be scrutinized through opera-glasses, and sage decisions arrived at concerning them. And, more than that, everybody took a personal interest in seeing that the flag was run up and politely dipped three times in response to the salutes of those strangers. In the smoking-room there were always parties of gentlemen playing euchre, draughts, and dominoes, especially dominoes, that delightfully harmless game. And down on the main deck, Ford, Ford of the chicken-coops and the cattle, we had what was called horse-billiards. Horse-billiards is a fine game. It affords good, active exercise, hilarity, and consuming excitement. It is a fixture of hopscotch and shuffleboard played with a crutch. A large hopscotch diagram is marked out on the deck with chalk, and each compartment numbered. You stand off three or four steps, with some broad wooden discs before you on the deck, and these you send forward with a vigorous thrust of a long crutch. If a disc stops on a chalk line, it does not count anything. If it stops in division number seven, it counts seven. In five, it counts five, and so on. The game is one hundred, and four can play at a time. That game would be very simple played on a stationary floor, but with us to play it well required science. We had to allow for the reeling of the ship to the right or the left. Very often one made calculations for a heel to the right, and the ship did not go that way. 
The consequence was that that disc missed the whole hopscotch plan a yard or two, and then there was humiliation on one side and laughter on the other. When it rained the passengers had to stay in the house, of course, or at least the cabins, and amuse themselves with games, reading, looking out of the windows at the very familiar billows, and talking gossip. By seven o'clock in the evening dinner was about over, an hour's promenade on the upper deck followed, then the gong sounded, and a large majority of the party repaired to the after-cabin, upper, a handsome saloon fifty or sixty feet long, for prayers. The unregenerated called this saloon the synagogue. The devotions consisted only of two hymns from the Plymouth collection, and a short prayer, and seldom occupied more than fifteen minutes. The hymns were accompanied by parlor-organ music, when the sea was smooth enough to allow a performer to sit at the instrument without being lashed to his chair. After prayers the synagogue shortly took the semblance of a writing-school. The like of that picture was never seen in a ship before. Behind the long dining-tables on either side of the saloon, and scattered from one end to the other of the latter, some twenty or thirty gentlemen and ladies sat them down under the swaying lamps, and for two or three hours wrote diligently in their journals. Alas, that journals so voluminously begun should come to so lame and impotent a conclusion as most of them did. I doubt if there is a single pilgrim of all that host, but can show a hundred fair pages of journal concerning the first twenty days' voyaging in the Quaker City and I am morally certain that not ten of the party can show twenty pages of journal for the succeeding twenty thousand miles of voyaging. At certain periods it becomes the dearest ambition of a man to keep a faithful record of his performances in the book, and he dashes at this work with an enthusiasm that imposes on him the notion that keeping a journal is the veriest pastime in the world, and the pleasantest. But if he only lives twenty-one days, he will find out that only those rare natures that are made up of pluck, endurance, devotion to duty for duty's sake, and invincible determination, may hope to venture upon so tremendous an enterprise as the keeping of a journal, and not sustain a shameful defeat. One of our favorite youths, Jack, a splendid young fellow with a head full of good sense, and a pair of legs that were a wonder to look upon in the way of length and straightness and slimness, used to report progress every morning in the most glowing and spirited way, and say, "'Oh, I'm coming along bully!' He was a little given to slang in his happier moods. "'I wrote ten pages in my journal last night, and, you know, I wrote nine the night before, and twelve the night before that. Why, it's, it's only fun!' "'What do you find to put in it, Jack?' Oh, everything! Latitude and longitude, noon every day, and how many miles we made last twenty-four hours, and all the domino games I beat, and horse-billiards, and whales, and sharks, and porpoises, and the text of the sermon Sundays, because that'll tell at home, you know, and the ships we saluted, and what nation they were, and which way the wind was, and whether there was a heavy sea, and what sail we carried, though we don't ever carry any, principally, uh, going against a head-wind always. Wonder what is the reason of that. And how many lies Molt has told. Oh, everything! I've got everything down. My father told me to keep that journal. Father wouldn't take a thousand dollars for it when I get it done. No, Jack, it will be worth more than a thousand dollars when you get it done. Do you? No. But do you think it will, though? 
"'Yes, it will be worth at least as much as a thousand dollars, when you get it done. Maybe more.' "'Well, I about half think so myself. It ain't no slouch of a journal.' But it shortly became a most lamentable slouch of a journal. One night in Paris, after a hard day's toil in sightseeing, I said, "'Now I'll go and stroll around the cafés a while, Jack, and give you a chance to write up your journal, old fellow.' His countenance lost its fire. He said, "'Well, no, you needn't mind. I think I won't run that journal any more. It is awful tedious. Do you know, I reckon I'm as much as four thousand pages behind hand. I haven't got any France in it at all. First I thought I'd leave France out and start fresh. But that wouldn't do, would it? The Governor would say, "'Hello, here, didn't see anything in France? That cat wouldn't fight, you know.' First I thought I'd copy France out of the guide-book, like old Badger in the Ford cabin, who's writing a book. But there's more than three hundred pages of it. Oh, I don't think a journal's any use, do you? They're only a bother, ain't they? Yes, a journal that is incomplete isn't of much use, but a journal properly kept is worth a thousand dollars, when you've got it done. A thousand? Well, I should think so. I wouldn't finish it for a million. His experience was only the experience of the majority of that industrious night-school in the cabin. If you wish to inflict a heartless and malignant punishment upon a young person, pledge him to keep a journal a year. A good many expedients were resorted to to keep the excursionists amused and satisfied. A club was formed of all the passengers, which met in the writing-school after prayers, and read aloud about the countries we were approaching, and discussed the information so obtained. Several times the photographer of the expedition brought out his transparent pictures, and gave us a handsome magic-lantern exhibition. His views were nearly all of foreign scenes, but there were one or two home pictures among them. He advertised that he would open his performance in the after-cabin at two bells, nine p.m., and show the passengers where they shall eventually arrive, which was all very well, but by a funny accident the first picture that flamed out upon the canvas was a view of Greenwood Cemetery. On several starlight nights we danced on the upper deck under the awnings, and made something of a ballroom display of brilliancy by hanging a number of ship's lanterns to the stanchions. Our music consisted of the well-mixed strains of a melodeon, which was a little asthmatic and apt to catch its breath where it ought to come out strong, a clarinet which was a little unreliable on the high keys and rather melancholy on the low ones and a disreputable accordion that had a leak somewhere and breathed louder than it squawked. A more elegant term does not occur to me just now. However, the dancing was infinitely worse than the music. When the ship rolled to starboard, the whole platoon of dancers came charging down to starboard with it, and brought up in mass at the rail, and when it rolled to port, they went floundering down to port with the same unanimity of sentiment. Waltzer spun around precariously for a matter of fifteen seconds, and then went scurrying down to the rail, as if they meant to go overboard. The Virginia reel, as performed on board the Quaker City, had more genuine reel about it than any reel I ever saw before, and was as full of interest to the spectator as it was full of desperate chances and hairbreadth escapes to the participant. We gave up dancing, finally. We celebrated a lady's birthday anniversary with toasts, speeches, a poem, and so forth. We also had a mock trial. 
No ship ever went to sea that hadn't a mock trial on board. The purser was accused of stealing an overcoat from stateroom number ten. A judge was appointed. Also clerks, a crier of the court, constables, sheriffs, counsel for the state and for the defendant. Witnesses were subpoenaed, and a jury impaneled after much challenging. The witnesses were stupid and unreliable and contradictory, as witnesses always are. The counsel were eloquent, argumentative, and vindictively abusive of each other, as was characteristic and proper. The case was at last submitted and duly finished by the judge, with an absurd decision and a ridiculous sentence. The acting of charades was tried on several evenings by the young gentlemen and ladies in the cabins, and proved the most distinguished success of all the amusement experiments. An attempt was made to organize a debating club, but it was a failure. There was no oratorical talent in the ship. We all enjoyed ourselves, I think I can safely say that, but it was in a rather quiet way. We very, very seldom played the piano. We played the flute and the clarinet together, and made good music, too, what there was of it, but we always played the same old tune. It was a very pretty tune. How well I remember it! I wonder when I shall ever get rid of it. We never played either the melodeon or the organ except at devotions. But I am too fast. Young Albert did know part of a tune something about, oh, something or other how sweet it is to know that he's his—what's-his-name. I do not remember the exact title of it, but it was very plaintive and full of sentiment. Albert played that pretty much all the time, until we contracted with him to restrain himself. But nobody ever sang by moonlight on the upper deck, and the congregational singing at church and prayers was not of a superior order of architecture. I put up with it as long as I could, and then joined in and tried to improve it. But this encouraged young George to join in, too, and that made a failure of it, because George's voice was just turning, and when he was singing a dismal sort of bass it was apt to fly off the handle and startle everybody with a most discordant cackle on the upper notes. George didn't know the tunes, either, which was also a drawback to his performances. I said, "'Come now, George, don't improvise. It looks too egotistical. It will provoke remark. Just stick to coronation, like the others. It is a good tune. You can't improve it any, just off-hand in this way. Why, I'm not trying to improve it, and I am singing like the others, just as it is in the notes.' And he honestly thought he was, too. And so he had no one to blame but himself when his voice caught on the centre, occasionally, and gave him the lockjaw. There were those among the unregenerated who attributed the unceasing headwinds to our distressing choir-music. There were those who said openly that it was taking chances enough to have such ghastly music going on, even when it was at its best, and that to exaggerate the crime by letting George help was simply flying in the face of Providence. These said that the choir would keep up their lacerating attempts at melody until they would bring down a storm some day that would sink the ship. There were even grumblers at the prayers. The executive officers said the pilgrims had no charity. There they are, down there, every night at eight bells, praying for fair winds, when they know as well as I do that this is the only ship going east this time of the year, but there's a thousand coming west. What's a fair wind for us is a head-wind to them. The Almighty's blowing a fair wind for a thousand vessels, 
and this tribe wants him to turn it clear round so as to accommodate one and she a steamship at that it ain't good sense it ain't good reason it ain't good christianity it ain't common human charity avast with such nonsense end of chapter four chapter five summer in mid-atlantic an eccentric moon mr blucher loses confidence the mystery of ship-time the denizens of the deep land ho the first landing on a foreign shore sensation among the natives something about the azores islands blucher's disastrous dinner the happy result taking it by and large as the sailors say we had a pleasant ten days run from new york to the azores islands not a fast run for the distance is only twenty four hundred miles but a right pleasant one in the main true we had head-winds all the time and several stormy experiences which sent fifty per cent of the passengers to bed sick and made the ship look dismal and deserted stormy experiences that all will remember who weathered them on the tumbling deck and caught the vast sheets of spray that every now and then sprang high in the air from the weather-bow and swept the ship like a thunder-shower but for the most part we had balmy summer weather and nights that were even finer than the days we had the phenomenon of a full moon located just in the same spot in the heavens at the same hour every night the reason of this singular conduct on the part of the moon did not occur to us at first but it did afterward when we reflected that we were gaining about twenty minutes every day because we were going east so fast we gained just about enough every day to keep along with the moon it was becoming an old moon to the friends we had left behind us but to us joshua's it stood still in the same place and remained always the same young mr blucher who is from the far west and is on his first voyage was a good deal worried by the constantly changing ship time he was proud of his new watch at first and used to drag it out promptly when eight bells struck at noon but he came to look after a while as if he were losing confidence in it seven days out from new york he came on deck and said with great decision this thing's a swindle what's a swindle why this watch i bought her out in illinois gave a hundred and fifty dollars for her and i thought she was good and by george she is good on shore but somehow she don't keep up her lick here on the water gets seasick maybe she skips she runs along regular enough till half-past eleven and then all of a sudden she lets down i've set that old regulator up faster and faster till i've showed it clear around but it don't do any good she just distances every watch in the ship and clatters along in a way that's astonishing till it is noon and them eight bells always get in about ten minutes ahead of her anyway i don't know what to do with her now she's doing all she can she's going her best gait but it won't save her now don't you know there ain't a watch in the ship that's making better time than she is but what does it signify when you hear them eight bells you'll find her just about ten minutes short of her score sure the ship was gaining a full hour every three days and this fellow was trying to make his watch go fast enough to keep up to her but as he had said he had pushed the regulator up as far as it would go and the watch was on its best gait and so nothing was left him but to fold his hands and see the ship beat the race we sent him to the captain and he explained to him the mystery of ship-time and set his troubled mind at rest 
This young man asked a great many questions about seasickness before we left, and wanted to know what its characteristics were, and how he was to tell when he had it. He found out. We saw the usual sharks, blackfish, porpoises, etc., of course, and by and by large schools of Portuguese men-of-war were added to the regular list of sea-wonders. Some of them were white, and some of a brilliant carmine color. The Nautilus is nothing but a transparent web of jelly that spreads itself to catch the wind, and has fleshy-looking strings a foot or two long dangling from it to keep it steady in the water. It is an accomplished sailor, and has good sailor judgment. It reefs its sail when a storm threatens, or the wind blows pretty hard, and furls it entirely and goes down when a gale blows. Ordinarily it keeps its sail wet and in good sailing order by turning over and dipping it in the water for a moment. Seamen say the Nautilus is only found in these waters between the thirty-fifth and forty-fifth parallels of latitude. At three o'clock on the morning of the twenty-first of June we were awakened and notified that the Azor Islands were in sight. I said I did not take any interest in islands at three o'clock in the morning. But another persecutor came, and then another, and another, and finally, believing that the general enthusiasm would permit no one to slumber in peace, I got up and went sleepily on deck. It was five and a half o'clock now, and a raw, blustering morning. The passengers were huddled about the smokestacks and fortified behind ventilators, and all were wrapped in wintry costumes and looking sleepy and unhappy in the pitiless gale and the drenching spray. The island in sight was Flores. It seemed only a mountain of mud standing up out of the dull mists of the sea, but as we bore down upon it the sun came out and made it a beautiful picture, a mass of green farms and meadows that swelled up to a height of fifteen hundred feet and mingled its upper outlines with the clouds. It was ribbed with sharp, steep ridges and cloven with narrow canyons and here and there on the heights rocky upheavals shaped themselves into mimic battlements and castles, and out of rifted clouds came broad shafts of sunlight, that painted summit, and slope and glen with bands of fire, and left belts of sombre shade between. It was the aurora borealis of the frozen pole exiled to a summer-land. We skirted around two-thirds of the island, four miles from shore, and all the opera-glasses in the ship were called into requisition to settle disputes as to whether mossy spots on the uplands were groves of trees, or groves of weeds, or whether the white villages down by the sea were really villages, or only the clustering tombstones of cemeteries. Finally we stood to sea and bore away for San Miguel, and Flores shortly became a dome of mud again, and sank down among the mists, and disappeared. But to many a seasick passenger it was good to see the green hills again, and all were more cheerful after this episode than anybody could have expected them to be, considering how sinfully early they had gotten up. But we had to change our purpose about San Miguel, for a storm came up about noon that so tossed and pitched the vessel that common sense dictated a run for shelter. Therefore we steered for the nearest island of the group, Fayal. The people there pronounce it Fial, and put the accent on the first syllable. We anchored in the open roadstead of Horta, half a mile from the shore. The town has eight thousand to ten thousand inhabitants. Its snow-white houses nestle cosily in a sea of fresh green vegetation, and no village could look prettier or more attractive. 
It sits in the lap of an amphitheatre of hills which are three hundred to seven hundred feet high, and carefully cultivated clear to their summits, not a foot of soil left idle. Every farm and every acre is cut up into little square enclosures by stone walls, whose duty it is to protect the growing products from the destructive gales that blow there. These hundreds of green squares, marked by their black lava walls, make the hills look like vast checkerboards. The islands belong to Portugal, and everything in Fayol has Portuguese characteristics about it, but more of that anon. A swarm of swarthy, noisy, lying, shoulder-shrugging, gesticulating Portuguese boatmen, with brass rings in their ears and fraud in their hearts, climbed the ship's sides, and various parties of us contracted with them to take us ashore at so much a head, silver coin of any country. We landed under the walls of a little fort, armed with batteries of twelve and thirty-two pounders, which Horta considered a most formidable institution. But if we were ever to get after it with one of our turreted monitors, they would have to move it out in the country if they wanted it where they could go and find it again when they needed it. The group on the pier was a rusty one, men and women, and boys and girls, all ragged and barefoot, uncombed and unclean, and by instinct, education, and profession, beggars. They trooped after us, and never more, while we tarried in file, did we get rid of them. We walked up the middle of the principal street, and these vermin surrounded us on all sides and glared upon us and every moment excited couples shot ahead of the procession to get a good look back, just as village boys do when they accompany the elephant on his advertising trip from street to street. It was very flattering to me to be part of the material for such a sensation. Here and there in the doorways we saw women with fashionable Portuguese hoods on. This hood is of thick blue cloth attached to a cloak of the same stuff, and is a marvel of ugliness. It stands up high and spreads far abroad, and is unfathomably deep. It fits like a circus-tent, and a woman's head is hidden away in it like the man's who prompts the singers from his tin shed in the stage of an opera. There is no particle of trimming about this monstrous capote, as they call it. It is just a plain, ugly, dead-blue mass of sail, and a woman can't go within eight points of the wind with one of them on. She has to go before the wind, or not at all. The general style of the capote is the same in all the islands, and will remain so for the next ten thousand years, but each island shapes its capotes just enough differently from the others to enable an observer to tell at a glance what particular island a lady hails from. The Portuguese pennies, or reis, pronounced reis, are prodigious. It takes one thousand rays to make a dollar, and all financial estimates are made in rays. We did not know this until after we had found it out through Blucher. Blucher said he was so happy and so grateful to be on solid land once more that he wanted to give a feast, said he had heard it was a cheap land, and he was bound to have a grand banquet. He invited nine of us, and we ate an excellent dinner at the principal hotel. In the midst of the jollity produced by good cigars, good wine, and passable anecdotes, the landlord presented his bill. Blucher glanced at it, and his countenance fell. He took another look to assure himself that his senses had not deceived him, and then read the items aloud, in a faltering voice, while the roses in his cheeks turned to ashes. Ten dinners at six hundred reis, six thousand reis. Ruin and desolation. Twenty-five cigars at one hundred reis, 
2,500 reyes. Oh, my sainted mother! Eleven bottles of wine at 1,200 reyes, 13,200 reyes. Be with us all. Total, 21,700 reyes. The suffering Moses, there ain't money enough in the ship to pay that bill. Go, leave me to my misery, boys. I am a ruined community. I think it was the blankest-looking party I ever saw. Nobody could say a word. It was as if every soul had been stricken dumb. Wine-glasses descended slowly to the table, their contents untasted. Cigars dropped unnoticed from nerveless fingers. Each man sought his neighbor's eye, but found in it no ray of hope, no encouragement. At last the fearful silence was broken. The shadow of a desperate resolve settled upon Blucher's countenance, like a cloud, and he rose up and said, "'Landlord, this is a low, mean swindle, and I'll never, never stand it. Here's a hundred and fifty dollars, sir, and it's all you'll get. I'll swim in blood before I'll pay a cent more.' Our spirits rose, and the landlord's fell. At least we thought so. He was confused, at any rate notwithstanding he had not understood a word that had been said. He glanced from the little pile of gold pieces to Blucher's several times, and then went out. He must have visited an American, for when he returned he brought back his bill translated into a language that a Christian could understand, thus, ten dinners, six thousand rays, or six dollars, twenty-five cigars, twenty-five hundred rays, or two dollars and fifty cents, Eleven bottles of wine, thirteen thousand two hundred rays, or thirteen dollars and twenty cents. Total, twenty-one thousand seven hundred rays, or twenty-one dollars and seventy cents. Happiness reigned once more in Blucher's dinner-party. More refreshments were ordered. End of chapter 5